Galatians 2:15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you your Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And Jesus, you said that if we abide in your word, then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. I pray that your spirit, the very spirit of truth, would take your word this morning and plant it in our hearts. And we would know the truth and that the truth this morning would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. We all probably know the unhappy experience of showing up at a place we were not welcomed at. Ever been there? Most little kids experience that at some point. Some adults do. Probably most adults do at some point. Right? The silence when you show up, the looks, and of course the ensuing uncomfortableness that you feel when that happens. Conversely, we probably all know what it's like to show up at a place and everyone is excited to see you, or everyone's glad you're there. You feel most welcomed. There's an old sitcom called Cheers, and the theme song says, um, don't know the whole song, but it says, where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came, right? You've been at a place like that too? It's a totally different feeling from the unwelcomed feeling we've all felt before. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ that is expounded for us in the book of Galatians is God's enormous welcome to a lost and broken and sinful world. It is God opening up his arms and gladly welcoming lost, broken, sinful human beings. The gospel is the Father's glad embrace of all who come to him through Christ And only through Christ. And when the Father welcomes us, here's what happens. Not only does he welcome us, but it changes our hearts. When we really experience the gospel, it changes us deep within, so that not only are we welcomed by God, but then we find ourselves welcoming other people. Right? We find ourselves opening up our hearts to others. Romans 15, 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, right? So that's what happens when God welcomes us and we encounter the God who gladly welcomes us through Christ. Then our hearts are opened up 
Sometimes in strange ways, sometimes in surprising ways, our hearts are opened to one another, to other people. The gospel, if we truly believe it, must make contact with real life, right? It's not just supposed to be these high fluting spiritual thoughts we think and sing about, but it's meant to make contact with real life. And the most profound way it makes contact with real life is by touching our relationships, right? The gospel makes us right with God vertically, and then it impacts our relation, relationships horizontally. When we experience the massive, loving, glad welcome of God, we find our hearts opened up to other people in ways we never imagined. And sometimes we are surprised by the people that our hearts are opened up to. Remember the conflict going on in this passage. Just a quick background. The apostle Peter is a, is a Jewish apostle, right? And his main ministry was to Jewish people. He was bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews, but he showed up in a city called Antioch. And there were non-Jewish Christians there. And Peter had no problem hanging out with them and eating and drinking with them until another group of Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem and showed up. And Peter felt this fear, the fear of man, at what these other Jewish Christians would think if they saw him, Peter, hanging out with these Gentiles, these non-Jews. And so it says that Peter distanced himself and drew back from these legit, believing Christians because they were not Jews. And Paul comes, and Paul has words with Peter. I mean, this is probably the most intense conflict. I, 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 I always overstate things. All right, this is a, a very intense conflict in the Bible, okay? The, the Apostle Paul publicly confronting the Apostle Peter. Okay? We, we, th- this conflict is alluded to in verse 21 when Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says, I don't nullify the grace of God. But I think he's insinuating that Peter, by his behavior, was nullifying the grace of God. Is there anything more frightening than to think that we, by our actions, can nullify the grace of God or to live in such a way that Jesus died for no purpose? Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, Martin Luther was a, one of the primary Protestant reformers about 500 years ago. He wrote this. He says, There is no sin more horrible than nullifying the grace of God, and yet no sin more common. And it was Peter, the great apostle, who was guilty of such an offense, not because he spoke a false gospel, but because, as Paul says, his conduct, his behavior was not in step with the gospel. And so he was denying the gospel by his conduct. He was nullifying the grace of God. So this is a warning to all of us. If it was possible for the apostle Peter to do this, and if Martin Luther's right in saying there's no sin more common then it is possible for you and I to do this. More than possible, we probably do it. We probably do it 
more often than we might think. But we want to live in the God's grace, don't we? We want to live in the light of God's grace. God's grace for the totally undeserving, like every one of us here. That's where we want to live. We want to rejoice in the death of Jesus on our behalf. We want to live in the light of that. We we don't want to live as though Christ's death was for no purpose. We want to live and rejoice and glory in it. We want to not only sing happily about the work of Jesus, but we want to live happily in the light of it and in its power forever. And I think that's why you're here today. You may think you showed up for another reason. God brought you here, I think, for that reason. To bring, to, to, to lavish grace upon you again in Christ. So how do we live in the power of God's grace? Well, we're, extru- we're instructed in these six verses we're going to look at this morning. In these verses, we see how God's, the gospel of God's grace for the undeserving shapes and forms our hearts, empowers our lives so that those with hearts wide open to God, all of a sudden find themselves wide open to other people. Wide open to other people. And in light of what's going on in our country and around the world, and quite frankly, in light of human nature, this is always relevant. This is always relevant. So what I want to do is I want to step through these verses, and I want to make a few observations, and then at the end bring it back to God's grace for the undeserving, welcoming the undeserving, changes our hearts so that we find ourselves welcoming others with wide open hearts. So just a few observations from these verses. First, I want to look at how do we find acceptance with God? How do we receive this rich, glad, massive welcome into the loving heart of a father in heaven? Well, verses 15 and 16 show us that it is through faith In Jesus alone, without adding a single work of your own. It is through faith in Christ alone. Not faith and, but faith alone. There is nothing better in all the world than to be accepted by God. Right? To know that you're going to stand before God in judgment someday, but you are safe and secure because God accepts you, because God welcomes you through Christ, not because you have attained to his standards or because he has lowered his, not because you attained to his standards or he has lowered his standards, but because you simply believed in Jesus. Simple faith in Christ. This is what is called being justified by faith. Verses 15 and 16 talk about being justified by faith alone. To be justified means to be pronounced in the face of all of your sins. To be pronounced innocent, not guilty, righteous. You get that? In the face of all of your sins that you've ever committed in the past and that you committed this morning. To be justified before God. Justification is a legal term. To be justified is for God Almighty in the face of your sins to say, not guilty, innocent, righteous. And this comes by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law at all. 
Not by keeping the Ten Commandments, not by trying to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, not by any other set of rules or commandments you might make for yourself. It is through faith in Jesus alone, without any addition. The most damaged, unrehabilitated sinner in the world, through simple faith in Jesus Christ, before he does a single good work, can be declared justified. Innocent, not guilty, righteous in God's sight. This is so counterintuitive to us, isn't it? We think, I'll get my, we think this way. I'll get my act together and God will be happy with me and he'll accept me. But Paul says here three times in verses 15 and 16 that we are justified not by works, Not by works, not by works, but through faith in Christ. He's making a point, right? Faith in Jesus alone. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became a man. He lived the perfect life that you and I owe God, but we can never give him. He died in our place for our sins He was buried in a tomb. He rose on the third day. And through simple faith, his perfect obedience is counted as yours so that God sees you as though Christ's righteousness was your righteousness. Perhaps you've heard of the, there's a kind of an easy to remember um, phrase on how to remember what it means to be justified. It goes like this. Justified means just as if you never sinned. And I say amen to that. But I would go a step further and say not only just as if you never sinned, but just as if you always obeyed. Just as if you had always obeyed God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Every other religion has a message that you either must earn or cause God's acceptance and blessing. Buddha's final words were, strive without ceasing. And every good Buddhist, that's, that's, what, that's the way they live. The dying words of Jesus were, it is finished. Strive without ceasing, it is finished. I don't know about you, but I'll take Christ. I'll take Jesus. It is finished. His work is finished. Besides that, what can you do to improve or upon or diminish the righteousness of Christ? He lived perfectly. His, his obedience to God the Father found its climax on the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How can you improve on that? Well, the obvious answer is we can't. We can't improve upon it, and we can't diminish it. When John Bunyan, John Bunyan wrote, um, he wrote the book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's been, a, it's been around for a few hundred years. Amazing book. When he learned this truth, it changed his life. And I'm hoping that some have a similar experience this morning. Well, all of us, maybe some for the first time. 
Here's what John Bunyan said. He said, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where's your righteousness? For it was always right there before him. I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. And he says this, Now my chains fell off, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. And so how are we accepted? How are we welcomed by God like this? Through simple faith in the finished work of Jesus and not by works at all. Through simple faith in Christ, we are justified. His righteousness is counted as ours and we are totally accepted, totally welcomed forever by God. Now, when we say this, uh, a surprising question is brought up by Paul in this passage. Quite honestly, it's not a question that's usually asked, but it probably should be. You know, we oftentimes have questions that we want to ask God, and sometimes I wonder if the questions I want to ask are not legit. You know, I just, I just am inquisitive, you know, etc. And the Bible does answer some of our questions, but you know what? The Bible also poses other questions to us that it sees as important, so sometimes we don't. It raises a question which may seem surprising, but actually makes sense when we think about the radical implications of the gospel, of God's grace. It's in verse 17. Here's the question. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is Christ a servant of sin? I think, the, I think Paul's asked, this is the way I kind of reworded that. I think this is what Paul's getting at. If our performance counts for nothing, and we as lawbreakers are declared totally innocent and righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus, does Jesus actually promote sin? Or is he an enabler? Is he serving sin? Is he a minister or servant of sin? We've all experienced that rosy-eyed parent who believes little Johnny could do no wrong, right? We probably have been that parent before, right? Little Johnny would never hit never hit anybody else. Little Johnny would never take something that doesn't belong to him. Little Johnny would never tell a lie. And everybody else around knows little Johnny's a rascal. Little Johnny's doing all of those things. But mom and dad, they just can see no wrong in little Johnny. And that mom and dad, in a sense, they're promoting that kind of behavior, aren't they? They are enabling it. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus just the great enabler in the sky? By overlooking all of our sins, he just says, it doesn't really matter what you do. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, Paul's answer is emphatic. 
See what Paul says at the end of verse 17? Certainly not. I love what the old King James says. It says, God forbid. No way. Is Jesus an enabler? Is Jesus a servant of sin? No way. But why? He lets the guilty go free. Right? He lets guilty people off the hook. He lets them go free. He justifies them. Well, Paul gives us, he supports his answer. The answer is no way. God forbid. But he supports his answer in verses 18, 19, and 20. So let's just spend a bit of time looking here. This is really important that we see what Paul's getting at here. Verse, in verse 18, Paul says, it is a great sin. Let me, let me just read verse 18 and 19 real quick. Verses 18 and 19, it says, so this is Paul's answer. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So is Jesus an enabler? No. Verses 18 and 19 tell us why it's an emphatic no. Verse 18, Paul says that it is a great sin against God to presume that you can climb up your, that you view the law like a ladder that you can climb up into God's favor by. That is a great sin. That by keeping a list of do's and don'ts, you can earn God's blessing. Paul says if you do that, you prove that you're a transgressor. We cannot be accepted this way but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So if we rebuild this ladder that was once torn down when we believed in Jesus, we prove ourselves to be transgressors. But this is a great temptation for us. We all want kudos for our performance. We do. I'm doing good, aren't I? In an age of self-esteem where a good self-esteem is the highest good, we want our performance to be recognized and praised. And so we, when we believed in Christ, we said no one's accepted by obeying the law, so that was torn down. And yet sometimes we try to rebuild it and climb that ladder higher up into God's favor when only through faith in Jesus we can be accepted and favored by God. Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector that I think is very helpful in making this point. It's in Luke chapter 18. Here's what it says. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And he said this, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And the other was a tax collector. Pharisees, just, Pharisees were the religious leaders for the Jewish people. Okay? They knew the Old Testament really well. They were the ones that taught the law to the people. Okay? Tax collectors were like seen as the worst of the worst sinners. Okay? So there was a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers. 
And he says, or even this tax collector over here. And then he goes on, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is how the Pharisee approached God. With the list of things he does. And people he's not like. The, the tax collector, on the other hand, he stood far off. He would not even lift his head to heaven, wouldn't even lift his eyes up, but was just beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There are two ways to approach God based on human performance or seeking divine mercy. Based on our performance or just receiving mercy. God rejected the Pharisees' self-righteous attempts to impress him and he accepted the tax collector's simple plea for mercy. You guys, self-righteousness is a special kind of stink to God. It is. The, the people Jesus butted heads with all the time were the self-righteous religious leaders in Judea. The people that Jesus, the people that gravitated toward Jesus and that he spent his tenderest moments with were the sinners and tax collectors. So Paul says that Jesus is a sin enabler, no way. To view the law as a ladder to climb into God's presence or God's favor is a grievous sin. But Paul gives further support in showing the true nature of the law. You guys, the law was never meant to make us feel morally superior to others. Right? But rather, it shows us where we fall short. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this about the law. He says, The law speaks not of privilege and achievement, but only of failure and guilt. Uh, he says only. Okay, it, do, it, does, it does show us God's nature and character. But in terms of us and what it does to us, it doesn't speak of our privilege and achievement, but our failure and guilt. In other words, we don't hold the law up and say, even though we want to do this, I want to do this so bad. Hold the law up and say, look at how good I'm doing. God sure must be impressed. Rather, the law plainly reveals we don't measure up. I once did an exercise with the youth group, and we had fun with it, but it was, it was a very good exercise for us to do. It's good for me to do. In which I printed out a piece of paper with the Ten Commandments on them. I gave one to each of the kids. <clears throat> I said, we're going to go through the Ten Commandments. Here's what I want you to do. Okay, as I explain the commandment, off to the right, I want you to put a one next to the commandment you have never disobeyed. And put a zero next to the commandment you have disobeyed. Went through each one of them. I said, okay, got to, we went from you shall have no other gods before me all the way down, all the way down to you shall not covet. And I said, okay, tally up your total. Ten is a good score. Zero is a bad score. 
Guess what everybody's uh, score was? Zero. Zero. When you get to the heart of the law, right? The Pharisees thought it was all about outward behavior. But when you get to the heart of the law, and that murdering is not just about stabbing somebody to death, but it is about hating them in your heart. And adultery is not just about sleeping with someone you're not married to. It's about lusting after another person. You realize, whoa. Everyone got a zero, including me. So, verse 19 says, the only way forward, guys. This is not meant to be depressing. The only way forward, okay, is to die to the law as a way of climbing into God's favor so that you can truly be alive to God. Martin Luther, again, in his commentary, said, to live unto the law is to die unto God, but to die to the law is to live to God. So we need to die to that way of living where we try to earn God's favor. When you believe in Christ, the law is torn down, as a way of currying favor with God. So you and I must completely die to that way of thinking and living. Our performance adds nothing to the finished work of Christ. And that is happy news. Verse 20. Verse 20 I think is actually the third reason Paul gives to the question, is Jesus Christ an enabler? And I think Paul's answer in verse 20, this is the way I put it. Verse 20, let me read it. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 20 says, the life of Christ in you exceeds your ability to keep rules. The life of Christ in you outperforms the most disciplined person's ability to keep rules. Massively outperforms. We understand rules, right? I got my list of things I do and things I don't do. We understand that. I get my act together. I clean myself up. I try harder. I try to be more disciplined. Right? I want to get up earlier. I want to go to bed earlier. I want to use more, my time more wisely. We understand rules and parameters. And of course, they have a place, right? I mean, rules, laws. We need laws. Traffic laws are a good thing. We just don't call that Christianity. Right? What we don't understand, what we have a harder time grasping is true reality and relationship with someone we can't see. But real Christianity, as Ray Ortland says, is Christ in you. Christ with you and Christ for you. Christ in you, Christ with you, Christ for you. Reality with Jesus Christ. Jesus is not 
just an absent theoretical savior. So all of a sudden here in verse 20, we see there's new power to live. Paul says, I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The no longer I who lives. Paul's saying the old egotistical I needs to die. The I that says my way needs to die. And with Christ, through faith in Jesus, it did. Now we try to resurrect him. Sometimes, often. But he was crucified with Christ. And then Paul says... Now Christ lives in us. And the life I now live in the flesh is by faith in the Son of God. Paul wants to make clear that we do still live, right? We do still have a life to live in these bodies until we die. Just the old person needed to go. And where does this new power come from to live? It is by moment, moment by moment, trusting in Christ. In Jesus, moment by moment, he's living in us. He's present with us. This is what Paul describes as a life of faith. I live by faith in the Son of God. I think oftentimes we think of faith as this, especially when it comes to faith in Jesus. I mean, some might say, I have faith for Healing, I have faith for this or that or the other thing. But faith in Christ, we often think of, that was something I did a a while ago when I believed in Jesus and got saved. Paul is saying, the life, this is the Apostle Paul, the life I now live is by faith in the Son of God. Moment by moment, trusting in Jesus as my present living Savior. Is your life described as a life of faith? Would you describe it that way? It can be. It can be described that way. This is how powerful, though sometimes slow, transformation happens in our hearts and our lives. You see, the external coercive power of rules to threaten and guilt us into behavior modification cannot change our hearts. Christ in us can and does. Verse 20 also gives us a new motivation for life. When we live by faith in the Son of God, notice what Paul says, living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is deep and personal. Our lives are to be lived by faith in the massive love of God through Christ, that he loved me and gave himself for me. It's important for us to know that that God loved the world and sent his son for the world. It's important for us to know that, but it's also really important for us to know that he loved me and gave himself for me. And the most Broken, seemingly hopeless person in the world through simple faith in Christ can confidently say that. He loved me. He gave himself for me. 
Again, laws can coerce us to do the right thing, but they can't change our life. They can't change our hearts. Real Christianity is living by faith in the real, present, personal, gracious Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. He is with you. He is in you. He is for you if you believe in him. So if all this is true, if we are welcomed by God, I mean, like John Bunyan said, Martin Luther, let me take a step back. Martin Luther, okay? Martin Luther was a monk in the most strict order of monks, the Augustinian monks. And he said, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, he said, if anyone could get to heaven by their monkery, it would be me. Fasting and vigils and prayers and readings and works and this and that and the other thing. But he was desperate for peace with God. And he didn't have it that way. And then all of a sudden this truth of acceptance with God through simple faith in Christ, the right that we are to live by faith in Christ, landed on him. And he said it was like the gates of paradise were opened. If that's offered to us, if that is our reality in Christ, why would we ever go back to keeping, to rule keeping? Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness could be attained through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose. Remember, Luther said this is a common sin, but don't do it. Be aware now. This is a great temptation for us to be pulled back into self-righteousness, legalism, moralistic behaviors as our standing before God, rather than faith in Jesus. To go back to rule-keeping is to nullify the grace of God, to act as though Jesus really probably didn't need to die for you. Resist the temptation to want to pat yourself on the back for how good you're doing and just start going bonkers for how great your Savior is. An important theologian in the 20th century named J. Gresham Machen said this about verse 21. He said, This is the key verse to the entire book of Galatians. It expresses the central thought. The false teachers attempted, that were coming into Galatia, they attempted to supplement the saving work of Christ by the merit of their own obedience. That, says Paul, is impossible. Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect or else trust fully in Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace if justification or acceptance with God, even in the slightest measure, 
is through human merit, then Jesus died in vain. Christ will do everything or nothing. If Christ doing everything makes your heart leap, amen. Let it leap for joy, praising your Savior, right? If it doesn't make your heart leap for joy, of course it could be because of the presenter of these things today, of course. But it also could be because you're still looking at yourself for your acceptance with God. You're still trying to justify yourself by impressing God with the things you do. Today's mantra, one of, one of today's mantras, there are lots of mantras today, right? Today's mantra is, you just have to believe in yourself. Paul would say that is exactly the problem. Will you stop believing in yourself and your goodness and your abilities and your performance? It, it leads us into pride when we think we're doing well and it leads us into the depths of despair when we know we're not. Would you stop believing in yourself and put all of your hope in Jesus Christ alone? Start living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, his arms right now, today, are wide open to you, to receive you as his, fa- as his son. The Father's arms are wide open to receive you as his son, his daughter, forever, fully accepted, fully welcomed, at home with him. And if you are welcomed and accepted by God, Let me put it this way. If you are as welcomed and accepted by God as Jesus himself is, listen, you can handle other people not accepting you. We we, we all experience that, and we all have varying degrees of uncomfortableness with it. To just be completely unconcerned about what people think, that's probably not the healthiest thing. right? But to be paralyzed by whether or not people like me or accept me or welcome me or think I'm cool or think I look good or think I come across a certain way, that is paralyzing. If the God of the universe says, you are mine, you are welcome to come to me with wide open arms through Christ, then we can handle the disappointing relationships in this life where people don't accept us and welcome us. And if you have received such a rich and warm welcome through Jesus, welcome one another in his name. Welcome one another in his name. If he he has opened wide his heart to the undeserving, like me and like you, then do the same. Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your gospel. 
God, we thank you that it is good news the first time we respond to it. And it is still good news after five years or 10 years or 20 years or 40 years. It is sweet news when we're old and ready to go to be with you. It is good news that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I pray that every person here would have an encounter with your truth, the spirit of truth, taking it and making it live in us and that we would leave rejoicing in our Savior, rejoicing in his work, knowing that we are welcomed by God by the work of Jesus alone and ready to welcome one another as you have welcomed us. In Jesus' name. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood. regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, oh come to the altar, the Father's arms are open Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And oh, what a Savior! And isn't He wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Oh, 
of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.